following program has certain words that certain people with certain ears would rather not hear. It's Tuesday, November 10th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Remember when Donald Trump on the campaign trail tried to use the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia for political gain? First, he was vague and seemed to indicate there was something going on maybe over there, war, borders, shelling. The conflict in the Nagorno-Karabakh region had been raging for weeks by that time, so the president laid out what I call the Trump doctrine on this conflict in a stop in Carson City, Nevada. Armenians. No, they're good people. They're great business people too, you know. For the Hispanic American, the Armenians, great business people. That's great. No, we're working. Where I just left, there were so many Armenians with a beautiful flag. And, no, we're working on we're working on some things. I'm keeping terrorists. You have great spirit in your country. I have to tell you, people from Armenia, they have great spirit for their country. So that was pretty much a detailed 14-point plan to end the conflict. Armenians! Still, somehow, Armenians, it did not stem the bloodshed. So a week later in New Hampshire, Trump promised once more to end the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. But with Serbia, so now we have Armenia. Look at the Armenia. They are incredible people. They're fighting like hell, right? They're fighting like hell. And you know what? We're going to get something done because, thank you, and I love you too. You know, the Armenians have had a tough... They've had a tough go, but I saw, in fact, I was in yesterday, Ohio, actually. I was in Ohio during, because I went to various stops, but in Ohio, we had a tremendous group of Armenians with the flag and the whole thing, the spirit. And the problems that they have and the death and the fighting and everything else, we'll get that straightened out. That's gonna be, I call that an easy one, okay? We'll get that. Go back and tell your people. Go back and tell your people, all right? We'll get that straight down. Armenia, why not? It's easy. If you know what you're doing, if you know what you're doing, it's like that. If you know what you're doing, it's easy. So easy. The next day, there was a U.S. ceasefire collapsed within hours. But now, it looks like there is an actual end to the fighting. No longer a temporary deal. But it was not brokered by the U.S. Oh, no, it was brokered by Russia. Wait a minute. That's not Armenia's backer in this conflict. They're in favor of the Azerbaijanis. Oh, no. So what does this mean for the spirited, flag-waving, good business people Armenians? The BBC has this analysis. But overall, I think this has to be read as a victory for Azerbaijan and as a defeat for Armenia. And it's not just the end of the last six weeks of fighting, the latest flare-up. It effectively changes the status of this disputed region after more than 28 years. They were, in fact, partying in the streets of Azerbaijan. Here now, I'm playing, you're hearing this, reaction from the Armenian parliament today. That is the Armenian parliament fending off screams, taunts, and thrown bits of jetsam from members of the Armenian public. They're not happy that they lost the war. And the Trump administration's reaction, come on, they had a reaction? Are you kidding? He never even knew what he promised or why he promised it. He just knew he said it was easy. 
There's nothing shocking about this administration's mendacity and inattention to detail. Maybe the service isn't to say, can you believe what they did? It's just to point out to you, yeah, this is another area of an ineffective response and an entirely empty promise. So I am sorry to you, Armenians, who for a second thought Donald Trump would or could lift a finger, not just to solve, but to actually understand your issues. On the show today, speaking of fighting the last war, why are the Republicans still using the Senate Judiciary Committee to investigate the FBI investigating Trump? They're playing the old hits, so will we. But first, Alex Trebek has sadly passed away, which I'm sure you knew. We talk with Claire McNear, who's out with a new book about Jeopardy, and we had this conversation a couple weeks ago. We held the interview until now because there was an election going on. And at the time, we, of course, knew that Alex was ill. And we do talk about where Jeopardy might go in the post-Trebek era. But we did not know that that era would be upon us so quickly. Claire McNear, author of Answers in the Form of Questions, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There is a Weird Al song that applies to me. No, I'm not like a surgeon. I do not live in an Amish paradise, but I did, in fact, lose on Jeopardy. Jeopardy is more than a game show, more than a TV show, more than an ongoing delightful Saturday Night Live sketch. It is, I have argued, perhaps the last vestige of the monoculture in America. I think by reading Claire McNear's new book, she might agree, the book is called Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. Hello, Claire. Thanks for coming on. Such a pleasure to be here. And of course, your subtitle is one of the few subtitles that ends in an exclamation, but it has to because that is how Jeopardy is punctuated. 
Yeah, I will say I feel like I have some lingering trauma from typing a whole book's worth of uh, exclamation points in un- unexpected places. Does anyone, uh, can anyone, I guess it was a vestige of the uh, Art Fleming show that it had the exclamation, but can anyone justify it to this day? I mean, certainly it's, that was definitely an Art Fleming idea from the Merv Griffin era, I should say. It was probably Merv Griffin's personal flourish. I don't know that there's a way to justify it, but it is certainly like a weird, distinctive thing like answering in the form of a question. So it's just one of those weird Jeopardy things. Well, I mean, it's just a trivia show, but there's the form of a question. Without that little wrinkle, would Jeopardy even exist? It's hard to say, of course, but I do think that that one little wrinkle, as you put it, gimmick even, it just makes it so, so distinctive. Like it is a catchphrase. It is iconic. It's the thing that you joke about on Saturday Night Live. I've talked to people who competed on other game shows and they kind of messed up and answered in the form of a question. Like it's just such an iconic thing that gets in your head. Right. I think I read some uh, early interviews with Merv Griffin and he conceived of it a little more open. Like really all Jeopardy is, is trivia, but there is that you have to phrase in the form of a question. But when he was pitching it, I think that he conceived of it as the questions might be something like, what is red? You know, have a broad base of answers. Yeah, I mean, certainly the kind of stuff that Jeopardy! asks about has evolved. And Merv Griffin had all these great stories about the the network kept coming to them and complaining, the show is too hard, the show is too hard. And they would say, okay, all right, we'll dumb it down. We're working on it. And then they would change exactly nothing. And the network would come (laughs) back and say, oh, great work. This is much better now. (laughs) It's all all in the uh, eye of the questioner or the beholder, I guess. So you've never been on Jeopardy, eh? I have not. And I never will be, uh, as, as you might have seen in the book. <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, you've done the test and you've done the personality test and all. So I've always wondered about that. I could see why the people who are very good and could qualify for Jeopardy and have a dream of qualifying for Jeopardy would like it. And I could see why the people who are, you know, right on the cusp are ensorcelled by it and maybe look up to the people who get on the show. And I could see why maybe a child will say, I I hope I'm that smart when I'm an adult. But there is, like, if you look at the ratings, there are so many people who love Jeopardy who miss most of the questions, for whom it's not even an aspiration. What do you think they're getting out of essentially a trivia show where they don't know the majority of the answers to the questions? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the joys of Jeopardy and one of the things that have you know, made it last as long as it has, which is that when you watch Jeopardy, there's such a range of material, such a range of difficulty, and so many just weird niches that if you're watching an episode, no matter how much of a trivia whiz you are or not, you will still probably have a clue come up where you're like, oh, I know that. Easy, easy. And, you know, better yet, maybe the contestants miss it on that given night. And you're like, aha, I'm smarter than the Jeopardy contestants. And you get this feeling of like, pride and fun. And and I I think also Jeopardy by design is something that's really easy to play from home. So you're watching it on your couch with, you know, whoever you live with, with your family, with your partner, with your parents, and you're kind of competing against them, not so much the three people on the stage. 
You work at this place, The Ringer, and, you know, the editor-in-chief there or founding editor Bill Simmons will talk and go over the NFL broadcast and they'll talk for hours and hours and hours about sports broadcasting. But if you look at how many people are watching, say, an NBA game and how many people are watching an episode of Jeopardy, Jeopardy's doing a lot better, yet it's so much less talked about and examined as a cultural phenomenon than the broadcasting of a sports game. I had always loved Jeopardy. I had loved reporting on Jeopardy and interviewing people about Jeopardy. But really the the moment where I realized how big it was and how there was kind of this, this hole that you were just mentioning was when I did, um, in the midst of James Holtower's streak, I did kind of a deep dive into the buzzer and yeah. how much the buzzer is part of the game. And a lot of that made it into the book as well. And how amongst the many things that made him so good, it was also his prowess, his ability to kind of win those buzzer battles, which you don't really see when you're watching from home. So what you don't see when you're watching an episode of Jeopardy, which you of course will know about having been there, is that around the edges of the game board, just off camera, are these blue lights. Basically what's happening is at the judge's table that you can catch kind of a glimpse of along the the far side of the stage, there is a guy who is just sitting there listening to Alex Trebek read out a clue. And the moment Alex Trebek finishes reading the clue, that guy will flip a physical switch sitting in front of him. And that turns on those blue lights and those blue lights make it so that the buzzers are enabled. And if you hit your buzzer before that, you're going to be locked out for a quarter of a second, which is a really long time when you're playing Jeopardy against other people who are also trying to do this exact thing. So Ken and Brad both go by Trebek's voice. They're trying to do exactly what the guy at that table is doing and just sort of get in sync, not with Trebek's rhythm so much as with that guy's rhythm. And you don't really know if you've got it until you're ringing in correctly or not. But James actually goes off the lights. So he is standing there staring at the blue lights and just waiting for the moment they turn on. And um, obviously that has worked out quite well for him. There is this just huge audience of people who watch Jeopardy who are not necessarily Jeopardy contestants, past or future. It it really is kind of sport-like in a way in that people do sort of view it as this ongoing competition and you have rooting interests if somebody makes it to multiple games and it really is huge in a way that we don't always appreciate. And I think for a lot of people, there's also this sort of sentimental side to it too, because the the game itself has not changed very much. It's always been 61 clues in every single episode. And it's always been this really rapid fire thing. And it's also in the last 37 years, always been Alex Trebek. It feels like this important American institution in a way that like most, most television shows, much less game shows don't really. Right. So clue construction. I've always wondered, how do they know which are the harder clues and which are the easier clues? I could, I see the 200s are always easier than the thousands, but how do they determine if a 600 is quote unquote easier or harder than an 800? It's a room full of writers who just are using their best judgment and sort of like bantering between themselves. And most categories are done by a single writer and then sort of taken to like a meeting, a digital meeting these days um, to discuss it and to workshop it and to kind of debate with the others which clues are are harder than, than which other clues. So you see things like daily double placement. That is also a manual thing that those people, those same people are doing. They're like, oh, you know, maybe this, this clue is particularly difficult, so we'll put it on this 
line of the of the game. And as a result, you know, it's not perfectly distributed. So you have people like James Holtower, for example, who are able to sort of systematically hunt the daily doubles because it's not random. It is human judgment. Right, right. Although I think I read that there have been, maybe in your book, there were like three or four daily doubles that were under $200 yeah. level clues in yeah, history. They definitely, they definitely try to throw a curveball every once in a while. Like every three years, yeah. <laughs> as in every yeah. once in a while. Yeah, I mean, I think they know that if they do it, everybody who's in that game will just be like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if they specifically targeted Holsauer, what's the lag time between writing the clues and locking a game and when that game is presented to contestants? You know, it can actually be a really, really long time. I think um, a lot of it is pretty quick. Uh, you know, you'll see things that that mention pop culture events or news events that happened really not that long ago. So, you know, when they want to step on the gas, they absolutely can. And so then, you know, you could even have them write a clue today that tapes, you know, next Monday morning, and that would be on the air in like six weeks. But you also do have this tremendous backlog of material. And I, I talked about this in the book, but they, there was one writer who in especially the 90s was kind of this just super prodigious, prolific writer, just the best writer in Jeopardy history. And, and he sadly passed away, but they are still using clues that he wrote, even though he passed away, I think, two decades ago now. Okay. So when Holzhauer was on and on his way to winning 32 games, by the end of that, was he playing on a board that the writers began to construct when Holzhauer was already the champion? Um, certainly in terms of laying out the categories, that, that would have been the case because while they, you know, categories themselves might have been written a long time ago, it's really like a week to week decision which groups of categories are going to go together. So that was probably decided very much when he was still um, taping episodes. However, because there is this federal law that that regulates quiz shows since the quiz show scandals, it would be extremely illegal, basically, to uh, to create a board just for him. Right. Or just against him. Like in golf, right. they, they quote unquote tiger proofed golf courses yes. when his game began to impress itself upon the sport. Yeah. During the greatest of all time tournament, for example, they built boards that were intentionally difficult and they had a lot of data for all three of those players, surely on which categories they were strong or weak in, but you know, they would have tried very hard not to use that. And again, you know, it's a human judgment to some degree, but they're not trying to deliberately screw anybody up or help anybody because it would be against the law. One aspect, and I talked to Ken Jennings about this, but one aspect I really liked about that tournament is that they allowed the personality of not just Alex, but the contestants to come through. When you talk to the Jeopardy producers, are they worried about that? Because I guess if you're just plucking someone from, um, you know, a random walk of life in America and putting them on or her on TV, you can't rely on having a great personality. But it seems to me that they do whatever they can to establish a floor for the contestants not being off-putting, but they don't really allow a contestant unless that contestant is one for many days in a row to exhibit too much personality. Well, to some degree, it's it's just really difficult to let any personality through with Jeopardy's format. Like there's just, you get the Q&A segment after that like first commercial break. But beyond that, and like whatever, you know, silly wink they give to the camera when they're being introduced, there's really not a lot any contestant, however flamboyant, um, can do to sort of, you know, make their personality shine. But I think that... Um, 
Jeopardy has been really excited about this sort of discovery that in fact, audiences love it when they get to sort of meet the contestants and, you know, people like Buzzy Cohen or Austin Rogers, who both won a ton of games and are fantastic, fantastic players, but also had these big personalities and you could kind of tell they, they were um, both in the tournament of champions and came in first and third. But I think Jeopardy tries really hard now to kind of find a way to harness that. And they haven't done a ton of it because again, the format is, is tricky for that, but they're, they're very aware that people enjoy rooting for players and meeting players. What's the demographic of the Jeopardy viewer? <laughs> um, I think it's a little bit older than the average player. <laughs> um, they, you know, like a lot of game shows, um, I think that, that, that there is a you know greater senior community that, that really loves Jeopardy. But with runs like James Holt's Hour, with tournaments like The Greatest of All Time, they've been pretty successful at pulling in younger audiences as well. Um, and one of the things, for instance, that the casting department looks at when they are trying to choose between all these contestants, and, and just as a really quick aside, it is so hard to get on Jeopardy just from a pure numbers stance. Like 80,000 people take the test every single year. They audition maybe 2,500, and there are maybe 400 spots for new contestants in a single year. So it's really hard. And a lot of those people are very smart, score very high on these tests, and, and there just isn't room for them in a given season. But, you know, they look at all the kind of categories you would think of when trying to figure out who to cast in a, in a given episode. And that's, you know, gender and that's ethnicity and that's where in the, you know, par what part of the country they come from, stuff like that. Um, but it's also age. Like, I think they know that because the audience skews a little older than, you know, your average 30 something contestant, that people get really excited when it's somebody who's not 34 years old. So they, they certainly try to cast people like that. Right. Is there maybe a player who people think when it was capped at five times could have gone on a Jennings or Holzhauer run? Or maybe the thought is even in that post era when they opened it up, someone who just had one or two bad breaks, the guys and gals who uh, go to the bar in Venice Beach O'Brien's and play among each other are seen as, you know, one of the best who never was or the be be almost best who almost was. Brad actually is an interesting case of that, right? So Brad, Brad Rutter originally played before that five game limit had um, been lifted. And obviously he's been back for many, many tournaments since then and is as you said, the person who has won the most money on Jeopardy ever to this day has won a ton of tournaments, but he never really became this sort of like sensation in the way that Ken and James were when they had these mega streaks. And I think it's probably pretty fair to assume that if Brad had not been capped at five games on his original run, he too probably would have gone on this very long run and become like this household name and, you know, had all these funny guest appearances and had the kind of weird fame tornado that the others have had. But there, there are people like Frank Spangenberg, who was this beloved contestant in the 90s. Um, New, York, New York City cop, big exactly. droopy mustache. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge mustache. And he's really tall. Um, and uh, I, I had the delight of interviewing him for the book. He still got the mustache and he's still working for the NYPD. But he was capped at five games and he, until James actually, was the highest money winner within the first five games of anybody's appearance. And I think we all would have loved to see what he could have done had he been able to stay on the show. 
Jeopardy is the 61 questions and whoever the host is, is the association and the caretaker and you have to do a good and competent job. But people will come for the 61 questions if the person respects the questions and hosts the show well. And the other thing is, as you pointed out, Jeopardy has all these associations and maybe you watch it with your grandparents and things that are tied up with association and sense memory. You just change one tiny little thing and it's all off and it doesn't trigger the sense memory. And while Jeopardy has that, I again, I don't think that that is the driving force behind its appeal. I think that the engine, you know, the DNA of Jeopardy is in fact the questions. And once the questions and the gameplay, if that doesn't diminish in quality, then they can have wide latitude on picking the right host. And I think Jeopardy will chug along fine. And they'll probably make more money because they won't have to pay the new host as much as they do Alex. <laughs> anyway, that's my analysis. I don't no, know what I you think, think of that. I think you're spot on. I think that the strength of Jeopardy is Jeopardy the game. I think that that's absolutely true. And, and you know, you, I've been asked by people like, oh, will Jeopardy continue after Trebek? And the answer is, oh my God, definitely. Yes. There is not a universe in which Jeopardy does not continue after Alex Trebek because it's a great game and it's a game that people love. And it's not going anywhere. I think the one thing that is non-negotiable and whoever the next host is, is that they probably want somebody who carries that scholarly air like Trebek. Mm -hmm. So whether that is, you know, a, a former contestant or a newscaster or, you know, a, a veteran game show host, they will kind of have that, that bookishness to them that we so associate with Jeopardy. Yeah, one thing about Trebek is he all it was so clear that he always respected the game. And there is a new trend just in the culture of, you know, being meta and taking a step aside and and having a little winking relationship with the thing that you're associated with. And that could be fine on a on a lesser show, but if you're dealing with one of the last vestiges of the monoculture, then I would say earnestness would be the order of the day. Right. I think it is It is to some degree sort of a sacred thing, both for people who work for Jeopardy and for people who watch it at home. It is this beloved tradition. And, you know, it's a really good game like we were just talking about. So I think they want somebody who respects that and who gets it and who who respects the contestants as well. That's a thing that Trebek talks about a lot. Like it is, it is just so hard to get on Jeopardy and it is so remarkable to see somebody do well that I think that that is kind of an inherent part of doing a good job as host. Claire McNear is the author of Answers in the Form of Questions, a Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. And for appearing on our show, she gets a case of Insure and a box of Lee Press-On Nails. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. The Trump presidency is stumbling along. Trumpism, a rump faction of the Republican Party, his power leeching away. You would be forgiven for thinking that he still has influence or holds sway, but it's mostly like a phantom limb where you say, oh, I felt it. Wait, it's not even there. Or maybe it's a little like a ceremony, maybe a religious ceremony that play acts the deed to remember the past, but it is not the deed itself. We eat this unleavened bread to remember. We hold these hearings to remember all the allegations about Russia Gate, to revisit the injustice of the Steele dossier, to relive all the feelings of persecution that fueled our fire. And this is why former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe was once again testifying before Congress. We did not open a case 
because we liked one candidate or didn't like the other one. We did not open a case because we intended to stage a coup or overthrow the government. We did not open a case because we thought it might be interesting or because we wanted to drag the FBI into a heated political contest. The investigation into Russian interference did have flaws. McCabe has acknowledged these flaws under oath, in a book, in interviews. The Steele dossier was not gospel. Carter Page was, though a suspicious ne'er-do-well, not Kim Philby. But let's remember, the U.S. Department of Justice has indicted dozens of members of the GRU, Russian hackers, including six last month. Maybe you missed this story, but these guys hacked the Olympics in South Korea. They tried to hack the 2017 French elections. They even spread a piece of malware called NotPetya, which may have been aimed at Ukraine, but bounced all around the world and caused, I don't know, maybe a billion dollars worth of damage at disabled hospitals in Pennsylvania and cost Mondelez $100 million. Who's Mondelez? You know, they're the giant multinational corporation that makes Oreos, which is something that should be punished in some way, just not this way. This is all to say that the Russians have hacked elections, tried to hack our election, did to some degree hack our election, and that hacking did benefit one of the candidates in the election. Look, I am not here to relive and relitigate the entire story of Crossfire Hurricane and the investigation into Russian interference in the election. I'm not here to do that. But apparently the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are. You get a CIA memo, investigative lead memo, suggesting that the Democratic candidate for president, Hillary Clinton, is trying to divert attention from her email server problem by casting aspersions against the Trump campaign being connected to Russia, and you didn't know about it. How is that possible? That was South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, the server and the Russians and the emails and the predicate for FISA warrants. It is all still happening. That memorandum that you're referring to, as I read it, is in response to an FBI request, oral request, for an update of the sort of information that the crossfire uh, hurricane task force was reviewing about Russian uh, activity in the campaign. Graham bore down on an issue, I will say, of some legitimacy. The Justice Department's inspector general did find fault in how warrants were renewed on Carter Page, so-called FISA warrants. There were inaccuracies in the filings. Everyone, in fact, should be concerned with members of the law enforcement community who sidestep oversight when wiretapping U.S. citizens. Absolutely. But the conclusions that the Republicans have drawn are, I believe, bad faith conclusions. They are at least overblown. But still, there's some usefulness in trying to figure out how the process broke down. McCabe was asked to account for this failure. Well, sir, I, I don't agree with the way that you've characterized the That's entire what the email. court said. But, um, I, I think, as the IG pointed out in the conclusions of their report... Who's that, responsible, Mr. McCabe? Know, everyone who... Had, every person... Everybody's responsible, but nobody's responsible? Actually, sir, it would help if you'd allow me to finish my answer. I think it might be uh, easier to understand. Okay. The question is, who's responsible? All, it was very hard for Senator Graham, for really all the Republican senators, to acknowledge the limitations of a Zoom hearing and not to battle, bicker, and try to score points. One might argue that if the main goal were in fact fact-finding and not point scoring, so much interruption might not be necessarily. One might argue Lindsey Graham is not that one. 
Andrew McCabe finally got a word in edgewise. And I think that we are all responsible for the work that went into that FISA. I am certainly responsible as a person in a leadership position with oversight over these matters. I accept that responsibility fully. Did you mislead, um, the, did you mislead the FISA court? Uh, I signed a package that included uh, numerous factual errors or failed to include information that should have been brought to the court. And what should and, be done? Um, what should be done to you and others? Well, Senator, I think we're we are doing that with this process. I think the F, our efforts should be focused on figuring out how these errors took place and ensuring that they don't happen again. The thing about the errors of Crossfire Hurricane is that, you know, they just might be errors. Errors which, as often happens in these things, are more likely to inconvenience the powerless, you know, the subject of the wiretaps, rather than inconveniencing the federal government asking for wiretaps. But let us acknowledge that government officials are human and sometimes make mistakes. Or maybe Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley just can't relate to that. Now going to leaks, uh, the subject leaks, L-E-K-S. I've made this point before. You just have to laugh. L-U-G-H laugh. But there is one aspect of this case that I can actually add some insight on. Operation Crossfire Hurricane was named for the Rolling Stones song, Jumping Jack Flash. Now when I had Peter Strzok on the show a little while ago, I noted that he begins a chapter of his book quoting from the lyrics to Jumping Jack Flash. But his conveyance of these lyrics struck my trained eye as a little bit off. So during our interview with a former FBI agent with an expertise in espionage, what I tried to do was I tried to build rapport and confidence in order to gently broach this subject. No, I just led with it right off the bat. Maybe I'm starting off on the wrong foot here, but I have a fact check right right off the bat. <laughs> Cross, Crossfire Hurricane, that is the name of the investigation, right? Yes, it is. And it comes from the lyrics of Jumping Jack Flash, which you quote as saying, I was born in a crossfire hurricane. I was born in a hurricane. And I howled at the morning driving rain. I'm sorry, Peter. The lyric is, and I howled at my maw, my maw in the driving rain. So uh, I, I've heard a variety. I've heard my ma. I have heard the word maul. And I have to go my with, mall. I could not find, because it's come up before, I could not find any sort of definitive uh, authoritative owning of the lyrics by anybody in the stone. So I stand by, I stand by the hound at the, uh, at the morning rain. And I think I want to say that was like something that Keith Richards had, you know, there was an allusion to his mother and that there was a personal that was a recollection of it. So it, that makes sense. And so I won't I won't rule out revisiting my conclusion about what the lyrics are. And, you know, of course, we, if we get through to any of the uh, members themselves, that would be the gold standard conclusion. Uh -huh. of what the lyrics actually are appropriate to have mystery in a counterintelligence case. Right. That's what I was going to say. If we were writing this up in an intelligence context, how would we describe the confidence of what the, uh, you know, two different versions of the lyrics are? Yeah, I, I would say, well, I would think moderate confidence on my behalf. I would not say high confidence. And of course, you would, you would subject yourself to partisan actors saying that you were Ukrainian disinformation. And this was designed to rend apart American society by causing us to debate the stones in an unhealthy way and get called up before the Senate to, to get browbeat or something.
Well, lyrics might not be his bag. A mall? He was talking about a mall? But when it comes to the politicization of intelligence conclusions, Strzok does understand how that particular game is played. And that's it for today's show. The category is before and after for 600. This GIST producer might be able to scratch her head with a product offered as a parting gift to Jeopardy contestants. Who is Margaret Kelly Press On Nails? Before and after for 800. This GIST producer was the Harvard lawyer played by Jeremy Irons in Reversal of Fortune. Who is Daniel Schrader-Schwitz? Category, before, during, and after. The executive producer of Slate Podcast might visit a state capital in the South and sip on a cocktail consisting of amaretto, Southern Comfort, slow gin, and orange juice. Who is Alicia Montgomery, Alabama Slammer? And I snuck a potent potable in there. The gist, ooh, sorry, it's Antananarivo. Cannot accept that. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.